What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead today. The crypto crash, a wild weekend leading to a Bitcoin bounce this morning. We'll look at who could be buying the dip and whether you should get in or get out. Plus, it's not just crypto. We've seen a bunch of speculative blowups this year from Momo stocks to SPACs. But the broader market is weathering it all pretty well. Can that last? And a new galaxy for Virgin stock, Beyond's big gains, and Merrill says no more to cold calls, and that might be my favorite story of the day. But we start with the markets. Dom Chu is here with that, those numbers for Kelly, as a guy who used to do cold calls for a living at one point, I can tell you, I can tell you it's character building. That's what I'll tell you right now. Anyway, uh, back back away from my brokerage days early in my career. Uh, the S&P 500 is just about 4,200. You can see there, we're trying to get back to that level right now. We're talking 1% gains there, half a percent for the Dow Industrials, and the NASDAQ about one, almost 1.5% one at this stage here. So again, a little bit of outperformance in some of those big technology and communication services, media-type stocks. That's something to keep an eye on. Maybe those are going on shopping lists once again. We'll see if that can last. One place within the technology sector that's showing some real signs of life, at least in the very near term, is the semiconductor trade. You can see over the last year, it's up a very respectable and market beating 76 percent. But it's been trading in a relative range here for now the last few months. We're right in the middle of that range and coincidentally, maybe not so much, sitting right around its 50-day average price. So this particular ETF is one to watch. It could be one of those indicators for general market sentiment overall, especially within the Nasdaq. And then... Every single sector is in focus today because of the market moves higher, but energy is also going higher as well. Not so for these two names. Cabot Oil and Gas is by far the worst performing stock in the S&P 500. Simrex, not in the S&P, is down about 7%. These two companies are combining in a stock swap transaction that will merge two different shale energy producing geographies in the United States. But Cabot Oil and Gas down now to about 6.5%. This particular deal not being well-received by investors right now. It is the biggest, by the way, Kelly, shale deal in the United States since Chevron's purchase of Noble. So keep an eye on the energy patch, especially Cabot and Simrex. Back over to you. I mean, but Dom, you have consolidation. You have, you know, something that's usually supportive of, of prices. I'm surprised that both of those shareholders are voting this one down in a big way. So the, the interesting part about this, there's a lot of analyst takes out there about the valuation. Simrex is actually going to own slightly, maybe more of the overall company than Cabot Oil and Gas will. It's a merger of equals. There are some concerns about the valuations being done at. There's no premium to this transaction in this merger of equals. And then some about the possible overlap. There isn't really any. Cabot Oil and Gas, very much the Marcellus Shale, eastern United States, Simrex in the southwestern United States, Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma, that area there. So are there synergies to be had? It's a debate for some investors mm-hmm. right now. That's the reason why you're seeing at least a little bit of negativity in both those stock prices. You know, I thought I don't want to put Dom on the spot if I ask about this, but it's impossible to put you on the spot. <laughs> the whole story. Uh, Dom, we'll see you in a moment. Thank you, sir. Let's get right to Bitcoin's bounce today. It's rebounding about 12 percent at the moment. It's around thirty seven thousand dollars and change after another big dip this weekend. One thing boosting it this morning, billionaire investor Ray Dalio making some pretty bullish remarks at crypto's 
or Coindesk's consensus conference. Take a listen. The more we create savings in it, the more um, you might say, I'd rather have Bitcoin than the bond. Personally, I'd rather have Bitcoin than a bond. That comment certainly making the rounds. Kate Rooney is here with more on the recent volatility. Kate? Hey, Kelly, great to see you. Dolly EO is certainly giving some investors confidence this morning. But there are some other dynamics behind the scenes analysts say are more responsible for those 30% drops that we saw last week. The big one here is margin trading. So exchanges like BitMEX, that's based in Asia, and a lot of these are based in Asia, let traders take on as much as 100 to 1 leverage. So they borrow to buy more Bitcoin. If they bet on the price going higher and that doesn't work out, they've got to pay their broker back. That often means selling more Bitcoin. There's usually a liquidation price for these trades. So say it's you know $35,000. Once Bitcoin hits that price, it triggers selling. According to data from firm uh, Bybit, that's a blockchain firm, there was almost $12 billion worth of liquidation in the crypto markets last week. This, I'm told, was really the big reason that Coinbase and some other exchanges saw those outages. Meanwhile, Mark Cuban tweeted about this dynamic. He called it the great unwind, pointing to this whole cycle. He says the minute Ethereum, in this case, that he was talking about, drops to that, quote, tragic number, traders have to unwind their positions. Another dynamic, guys, Bitcoin lending. Firms like BlockFi and Celsius that offer loans backed by Bitcoin. If you take out a million-dollar loan, for example, and that's backed by cryptocurrency, if the price of that goes down by 30%, you end up owing more to your lender. So you've got to put up a little more cash or, in a lot of cases, sell Bitcoin. Analysts tell me these dynamics are not likely to change until the market matures. So expect more Bitcoin volatility going forward. Kelly, back to you. Kate, that's what reminds me of the housing bubble back in the early 2000s when people would take money out of their homes. And it works great when you have equity, which is growing because prices are going up. And when they stop going up, then you get the negative cycle working the other way. Yeah, you, there's, this whole derivatives market is really maturing. And actually in the U.S., so places like Robinhood and Coinbase don't allow traders to use leverage or trade on margin. But a lot of the exchanges where there is a lot of cryptocurrency interest in Asia, I mean, 100 to 1 leverage, that is common in foreign exchange markets. But you don't have currencies often going up by 10 or 20 percent in a day. So it is a little bit more normal. That dynamic, I'm told, those leveraged trades out of Asia really have been pulling on the dyna- on the prices. And it is something I think retail traders need to be aware of because they might see a headline out of China or the Treasury Department saying, oh, that this is likely what's weighing on it. I think it's very important to keep some of these back-end dynamics in mind if you're a new trader and don't know why. For example, something like a headline out of the Treasury Department would weigh on Bitcoin and drag it down by 30%. Kate, so we're about to talk a whole lot about this. What, what is the scuttlebutt in the community about the performance of coin shares and CoinDesk? I mean, again, these should all be beneficiaries of this volatility, but that's not really the case right now. Yeah, so Coinbase, exactly. It's, it has been really tied to the price of Bitcoin. There are certain dynamics, I think, that, sorry, that keep those separate. But for the most part, I think any of these, whether it's blockchain, cryptocurrency-related companies, tend to be long-term tied to the price of Bitcoin. So even if there is a little bit of difference in the near term, I think long term, those bets tend to be placed in the same 
risk on Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency long-term investment thesis. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, Kate, thank you very much for running us through all of this. Kate Rooney. Uh, on crypto today. Volatility does seem to be the only constant in the crypto universe. And in recent weeks, the total value of the crypto market has been as high as $2.6 trillion and as low as $1.4 trillion. All of these dramatic moves are driving record-breaking activity on digital asset platforms. With us now is Meltem Demir. She's chief strategy officer of CoinShares, which just reported its first ever quarterly results as a public company. So Meltem, it's good to check in with you. And again, you know, we're probably a little more familiar with CoinDesk over here. CoinShares is kind of a big European uh, crypto wallet. Um, tell me about the activity that you guys are seeing and what's been happening with the crash here in crypto the last few weeks. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today. So at CoinShares, our business is really comprised of two primary activities. Around 40% of our revenues in Q1 came from asset management. We have Europe's largest uh, digital asset-focused ETPs. Those have been trading in the market since 2015. So we had $6 billion at the peak in May. Today, we're around $4 billion uh, there. And then we also have 60% of our revenue in Q1 coming from our trading capital markets activity. There, you know, in Q4, we were doing about $1 billion month in turnover. The first quarter of this year was really active. We're trading in futures market. We take a risk neutral approach to trading, do a lot of lending and fixed income. So Q1 across the board in our business was exceptionally busy. We saw a lot of inflows into asset management products, but we also saw a lot of activity in trading. And as Kate alluded to, on the trading side, it's really less about the price of Bitcoin. It's more about volatility. Whenever there's volatility on the upside, or on the downside, it's a great time for firms to be in the market. It was extremely profitable for, I think, all firms that operate in that space. Sure. And I know that your earnings per share are affected um, by fair value gains on digital assets and, and mm-hmm. all of these kinds of things. But make the case to an investor. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of other commodity spaces. I was just thinking about this today, that over the long run, the price of oil has maybe not been a great investment, but a company like Exxon has been. You know, I'm talking about over a period of decades and decades and decades. Is there an analogy to make between having exposure to Bitcoin or Ether or whatever you want and investing in a company like yours? You know, how are you guys going to provide a better return on capital than somebody who says, I'd rather just be, you know, I'd rather just own the underlying asset? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And that's, I think, one of the great things we have now with our friends at Coinbase going public in Q1, us going public in Q1. There's a lot more data for equity analysts to look at and a lot more opportunities for us to share what's going on in our business with the market. So what we really look at is look at the CME, right? Traditional financial services models are a dying breed. Digitization is happening. Markets are becoming 24-7, 365. Crypto is the first market to do that. But in our view, all markets will be digital, global in nature in the next five to 10 years. And we're really well positioned to take advantage of that. We're a technology firm. We build and develop trading infrastructure that allows us to deploy innovative products like our ETPs. But at the end of the day, the big shift that we're betting on and everyone in this asset class is betting on is distribution models for financial products are fundamentally changing, right? right? Consumers want more optionality. We see this with millions of users every day logging onto these platforms and trading, again, around the clock, days, weekends, weeknights, weekend evenings. So this is a new paradigm, and that's what we're building for. Mm -hmm. It's not just about crypto. It's all of Fiserv. So let me ask you this final question then for everybody who's been watching the price action. Who's driving the selling these days? 
What do you think is going to be the appetite longer term for institutional demand? Is it, are they buying the dips? Are they maybe actually scared off if they've been following some risk processes <laughs> to add this into the portfolios? Are they going, you know what, forget it. We'll, we'll just kind of yeah. take a step back and maybe try again in a couple of years. Yeah, that's a great question. So again, here I think the trend is and data that we've looked at from Glassnode in particular, an on-chain data provider confirms this. A lot of the selling recently has been primarily retail. And a lot of these retail buyers are people who've entered the market recently, feeling skittish, selling, and also traders. There is a huge market maker component to this. There are a lot of firms that are actively trading basis, that are actively trading some of the really juicy ARBs that exist in this market. But again, and a lot of the selling is not institutions. When institutions allocate, they're really making a long time horizon bet. You know, they're not entering the trade and then exiting a week later. This is really a process of heavy due diligence, learning, and then allocating with a long-term time horizon. Right. So I think this pain is really short-term. There's a lot of very, you know, skittishness generally in macro markets, which we saw, by the way, in tech equities as well. I think as that starts to calm down a bit, we're going to continue to see retail get back into the market. By the way, spot exchange volume is at record highs over the last week. Again, volatility drives activity, whether it's up, whether it's down, that volatility will continue to be a trend for us. Interesting. It's a great data point. Meltzum, thanks for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Meltem Demirs of CoinShares. And on the flip side, Goldman Sachs initiated coverage of Coinbase today with a buy rating and a 306 target. That's 30% upside. If you think that's high, D.A. Davidson's $650 price target makes them the most bullish on Coinbase on Wall Street. But Moffitt Nathanson and BTIG also think it'll more than double from here. Remember, Coinbase went public in April via direct listing, hit an all-time high of $429 in its debut. It's down about 50% since then. It's at 226 even if it ends today higher, higher, it'll be only its eighth positive session in 29 trading days as a public company. Still, Goldman says this business model should thrive on crypto's volatility, like Melton was just saying, and that buying shares of Coinbase is the best way for investors to gain exposure to crypto. For more on their call, head over to CNBC.com slash pro. Coming up, one of our next guests says this will be a choppy year for stocks, and she just upgraded this group as a result. The name and the other market moves she's making right now are next. Plus, the biggest shakeup in over a century. Big changes could be coming to the way global companies are taxed. We have a closer look at the president's plan and how it would impact companies like Nike, Starbucks, Apple, and more. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks have held up remarkably well this year as we've dodged one speculative sell-off after another, from Bitcoin to SPACs to meme stocks and even Tesla. Is this a sign of resilience or is liquidity about to dry up? Joining me now are Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, and Bryce Doty, Senior Portfolio Manager at SIT Investment Associates. Welcome to both of you. So, Katerina, how are you positioning for what you think is going to be a choppy year? Well, Kelly, thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely choppy year, to say the least. Uh, we see the post recovery and the uptick in this market happening, you know, a little too fast. As a matter of fact, twice as fast as would be normally expected uh, from the, the economic cycle. We see us transitioning into the mid-cycle at the moment. And this transition comes with the excess choppiness. So while we, we find ourselves in the middle of the bull market, we do expect a, a temporary pullback for sure. So how do you position? We position by rotating into the quality. There were certain themes that we're already seeing do extremely well. The tax, small caps, uh, cyclicals. And at this point, we're looking for a place that is going to be a good place to hide for investors, continue be invested, continue benefit from this bull market by certainly rotating to quality and dividend paying stocks. Okay. And I know your sectors in particular, financials, healthcare, materials, industrials. Um, Bryce, same thing. Let's talk about quality. I think you were excited by uh, what the Biden administration is saying about Alaska cruises this summer uh, as well. Yeah, you know, that's just another instance of how travel and leisure is really going to become come screaming back. I think you're going to see even business travel pile on. So we we like a lot of the uh, the cyclical things as well, but maybe a little more um, more of a rifle approach where you really zero in on uh, leisure and and take advantage of things that are really going to see a pop in prices. So we think shipping is just uh, had had a big increase, but it's just going to get more and more. So we like the uh, the sector ETFs that, that take advantage of that, like Away and or Be Dry and things like that. Sure. The 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 inflation concerns are what I think is going to create some of the choppiness as well, because it's a double-edged sword. It's great that every everything's rebounding, but if we look at what uh, home prices are going to do tomorrow morning, they're going to be up double digits. Well, if you're spending more on homes, you're spending more money on gas, you can't buy as many things. So, so that's where sometimes you'll see a pullback in the markets as well. What I like about today is with the stocks being led by tech, you know, that used to be mean that, oh, that's a that's a stay at home trade. But that's right. That's long gone. Right. So now what it represents to me, since tech is such a big portion of the indexes, indices, especially like the S&P 500, that's a sign cash is just coming into the market. And there's and there's, as you mentioned, there's a ton of liquidity out there and cash is trying to find a place to go. So that's where some days, you know, you look like a genius you know, when the market's going up. And the next day, you look like a dunce uh, uh, because all of a sudden there's inflation scares and sure. tax increase scares. So that's why it's going to be kind of choppy. Well, but I think you're bringing this back to the liquidity question. And from both of you, what I'm hearing is not a concern that there's going to be a lack thereof. You know, we're watching the M2 stats. A lot of people are trying to figure out, OK, maybe it peaked in February. Maybe that's when the SPACs peaked. Maybe that's you know, why crypto has been struggling lately, but it doesn't have to mean that stocks do poorly. Bryce, where do you think the liquidity that you mentioned, you think there's kind of new money coming into the market? Do you expect that to continue? I mean, where do you expect that to come from? Right. You know, it's you're seeing the reverse repo facility that the Fed uh, put in place spike in the last week. 
and that's was previously due to fear. Now, now it's just cash looking for a place to go, and the, and the Fed continues to to you know print 120 billion dollars a month, and so there's there's cash everywhere, and it's searching for a place to go because the yields are so low, and that's why I think you will have some of these nice pops in the equity market and things like that, where cash is like, well, we we got to make money somewhere, and that's where we're going to go. I think tips. Uh, and inflation protection areas is where you'll see a lot of money go for bonds. You're, mm-hmm. s- you're seeing the inflation expectation on a 10-year tip up to 2.5%. Right. I mean, that's a that's a long-term trend. I know the Fed says everything's transitory, but this is a 10-year average expectation of 2.5%. So that's that's where I think uh, some of the money's going. Fair enough. And I'm glad you mentioned the reverse repo point because I had seen that spike. Wasn't sure what the explanation was, but that would be a, an intriguing one. And I want to talk to you about silver, but we'll have to save that for another time, Katerina. I just want to get one more to you on this question about inflation. You know, are you guys positioned for it? Are you ignoring it? Do you think the Fed's going to kind of pull off the exit here? What, what If you can kind of boil it down quickly to concern or not one? Well, I'm with Mike on this one. You know, I think inflation is, you know, clearly a concern, but we've heard over and over the narrative from the Fed that they're not going to act on it too quickly, that they are going to wait and see, and perhaps it's transitory nature, but eventually they will have to act, and eventually it's going to lead with higher rates. So the sectors that we're looking at would be the ones that are positively correlated with higher inflation and higher rates, Mm -hmm. like financial example, um, you know, would be a great place to be considering the inflation rate. Yep. We and we've already seen them uh, doing quite well this year uh, in, in anticipation of that. Thanks, guys. Katerina Simonetti and Bryce Doty joining me to talk through these markets today. Really appreciate it. Coming up, Dollar General down as one analyst says there are six reasons to get bearish on this stock. What are they and what's it tell us about the economy? As we had to break, a reminder, we're wrapping up Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. All month long, we've been spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders and our own on-air anchors and reporters. In fact, here's our very own Deirdre Bosa. My mom grew up in a small fishing village in Taiwan. She moved to Canada at the age of 16 with no English, no job, and barely any money. So I really watched her overcome a number of challenges as an immigrant, chartering an interracial marriage, and really providing so much for my three brothers and I. She eventually ran for public office in Canada, and she embraced her heritage. And that really inspired me to begin my own career as a journalist. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on the markets. Dow is up 241 at the highs. We're hanging on to a 214-point gain, but it's the laggard, up two-thirds of a percent. Meanwhile, the S&P is up 1% and the NASDAQ. We were just speaking about this a moment ago, but it's up 1.5% today, finally getting some traction here. In terms of the movers this hour, social stocks are higher, with Snap seeing the biggest gains. It's up nearly 6%. Twitter, the only name in this group, which is up nearly 5% today, that's positive for the month. But Twitter is still down more than 30% from its all-time highs back in February. Sports betting and casino stocks are also higher. DraftKings, Red Rock Resorts, and MGM all seeing some nice gains in the 4 to 8% range for DraftKings. Uh, still been a tough month for some of these names and a tough start to the week for most of the EV and alternative energy stocks. QuantumScape, Fuel Cell, seeing the biggest losses, about 6 to 7%. We're watching Lordstown, though. That one's up 2%. Uh, the stock uh, was down about the same amount a little bit earlier, but they are set to report earnings this afternoon. It's been the subject of much debate uh, with Ford's new EV150. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. A seven-day manhunt involving 300 officers has come to an end without a single shot fired. Police have arrested Tyler Terry in connection with four killings in South Carolina and Missouri. Terry has been running from law enforcement since last Monday when police say he ran from a wrecked car after firing on local deputies. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith to see how officers found Terry and how he was able to evade them for so long. Americans logged 263 billion miles on roads and highways in March. That's a 19 percent increase from last March and a 6 percent rise from February, although miles driven still remains below pre-pandemic levels. In Italy, investigators are focusing on why the lead cable snapped and an emergency brake failed and a cable car disaster that killed 14 people. The lone survivor of that accident, just a five-year-old boy, remains in intensive care with multiple broken bones. And back here in the U.S., the winner in Friday's $516 million Mega Millions drawing has still not come forward. The ticket was sold at this 7-Eleven that's in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Local residents there are urging the winner, Kelly, to share the wealth. And I can tell you that Bucks County is right outside of Philadelphia, my hometown. Yeah. <laughs> also urging the winner to share the wealth. A big retirement what? area, right? I think, or is it just my parents? So I was saying, eh, you know, looks pretty oh, good out there. I, I didn't think, I, I didn't know that, but. Maybe it's just that. Totally them. possible. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time. All right. I mean, if you have half a billion dollars, you can retire anywhere. That's exactly right. You can retire in Manhattan. Yes. Uh, thank you, Rahel. We'll see you soon, Rahel sure. Solomon. CNBC's first NFT is now up for grabs. We are honoring the Mark Haynes bottom, highlighting the day he said the S&P had hit a low during the depths of the financial crisis. Come on, everyone. We've been waiting for this. I think we're at the bottom. I really do. Amazing. It was the the day it happened. I mean, it's really one of the best market calls ever. Mark passed away 10 years ago today. The auction is open until 10.30 a.m. Eastern on Wednesday. Even if you don't participate in the auction, it is an opportunity to learn more about this new asset class. We have a number of NFTs that will be auctioning off. All proceeds go to Autism Speaks. It's a favorite charity of Mark's and the Council for Economic Education, which focuses on financial literacy. You can check it all out at mintable.com slash CNBC. And it's a carbon neutral event. We're purchasing carbon offset credits from a firm called Ariel. To learn more or place a bid once more, go to mintable.app slash CNBC. Bernstein calls Beyond Meat a reopening play. No soft words for the Olympics from Masa Sun. And Merrill nixes the cold call. All that and more coming up in Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories to kick off your week that should definitely be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to help break down the headlines are Morgan Brennan, Mike Santoli, and Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, by the way, I loved 
loved your mom's life story. I don't know if did everybody see that into the break. That was awesome. Thank you. That was uh, did she was she in politics or it was just a run at it? She took a run at it. She did not get elected. But her life story is is very long. One day, Kelly, I'll have to tell you all about it. I know. Now I'm all intrigued. Uh, anyway, thank you all for joining us. Let's move <laughs> right along. Talk Virgin Galactic. The shares are climbing higher after a successful crude test flight this weekend, the first in over two years. CEO Michael Colglazer told Morgan earlier it's a big step towards the launch of commercial space flight. It's not been a normal thing and mostly not expected in people's lifetimes that going to space is something to be considered. And so this is really the launch of this industry as it goes out. So far, there are only six places in the world that have taken humans to space. Virgin Galactic's uh, been at two of those. The shares are soaring today. They are up about 19.5% right now. We're up 51% in a week. Michael, I'm going to first turn to you to put this stock move into context, because this was one of the ones, sometimes we talk about it as emblematic of the frothy blow-off. Yeah. Now all of a sudden it's gotten this traction. It, tell me what you think is going on from a market perspective. Well, it's revived. I mean, obviously it had this tremendous uh, surge up into the, what, 60s. Uh, it had come far back down in the sort of reckoning on all the concept stocks. And now it's bouncing. What's most interesting to me, though, if you go back, it's less than two years ago that the initial merger that created Virgin Galactic with the SPAC was uh, announced, not consummated, but announced. In the initial excitement after that, it went up to like $12 a share and then kind of receded and then got rekindled. But at that time, two years ago, they were projecting that for this year, 2021, they would have $200 million in revenue. They thought they'd be that far ahead of the game. So now we're double that price and we're just doing test flights. Wow. Okay, fair point, Morgan, which does remind me a lot of the Tesla story, although obviously they're, they're, they've gotten past that now. Um, what's, how significant is this weekend's news? It's significant because, and keep in mind, and Mike just pointed to this, but this is a company that is still pre-revenue. This is the first of four test flights that need to happen uh, before you can actually see that commercial service launch and thus the ticket sales open back up and that revenue start up again uh, in a meaningful way for the company. So the fact that this was successful, keep in mind they first tried to do this and had to abort that trip back in December, so it was delayed. It's been a long time coming, um, is very notable. It also, according to Cold Glacier, keeps the company now on track to do those three test flights. If all goes according to plan, as of right now, by the end of fall, then you see some upgrades and you see that launch of service early yeah. 2022. You know, and I know we should move along here, but can we talk aliens for a quick second, Morgan? Because this is like my favorite story. That okay. Oh, every time. I haven't talked about. So I, I, every time I'm on Twitter now, especially over the weekend, I read things like this. My mom in Tennessee says the sky is filled with 50, you know, and people are tweeting at Elon Musk saying, are these your satellites? And, and we're talking about all this space flight. And I'm thinking, is this all connected or are we just going through like a strange, you know, mental moment as a country? No, I think we're ushering in this new commercially driven era of not only space flight and space travel and now space tourism. When we're talking about Virgin Galactic or, by the way, its competitor Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos company is auctioning off a seat for millions of dollars right now. Um, but also just in terms of satellites and what that's going to mean for connectivity, hence Elon Musk, SpaceX and, and those Starlink constellations that people keep spotting yeah. uh, in the night sky. But the UFO piece of this is actually really fascinating. This is the Department of Defense. Um, it's our national security agencies. Congress actually tasked um, our national security entities with delivering an unclassified report by next month on unidentified aerial phenomenon. This is a very 
serious, so real is it just coincidental? that's being investigated. But is this happening because of all the satellites that are in the sky no. now? And all this it has sp- nothing just, to do with it. Just, this, is, this is something different. This, this dates back. This is Air Force and Navy pilots who have been seeing things that they can't identify uh, for quite a number of years. There's videos. Some of those have been released in the last couple of years. And you have some heavy hitters, everybody from the former Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, to former CIA directors who are now coming out. It's like the floodgates have opened. They're coming out and talking about UFO possibilities. All right, Deirdre, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Where do you go? I, from I don't know that yeah, I can follow I that know. up. I'm just, I, I'm just here to listen to the <laughs> UFO space talk. I'll leave that to you guys. I, didn't realize. I trust Morgan's expertise here. Ah, I was, I was hoping it was gonna be like, no, it's just, you know. I just want to know, Deirdre, you might have a window in Canada. Are they also like wondering if they're, if we're being visited? Is this just an American thing? Right. I, you know what? I am not sure. I will, I'll ask around. I'll do some polling for you to see <laughs> Sorry, if we're fascinated by this. That, that suggests to me yet. that it is not, that it is purely, we're losing our collective minds. All right, we'll move along before I get all the tweets from the alien people. Uh, Beyond Meat is surging after getting a double upgrade at Alliance Bernstein to outperform from underperform. They're calling it a reopening play that should benefit from increasing consumer mobility, and its relationship with McDonald's, the shares are on pace for their best day in four months, but still negative on the year. Beyond was super hot after going public in 2019, but it struggled a little bit lately. Although, Michael, I still think its share price at $118 is incredibly impressive, given that we've seen a lot of people come on the scene and more or less implode in terms of the stock price. To me, they're really hanging in there. No, it's true. And, and in fact, you know, the analyst concedes that this still has a pretty stout valuation. I mean, we're talking about 13 times revenue. Keep in mind, we're talking about no cash flow yet. So this is still in the in the ramp up phase. Uh, and yes, I think the stock is, is supported by general enthusiasm and market share gains for you know, meet alternatives, which is not going away. The question is, is this the, the best and proper vehicle to exploit that opportunity? Deirdre, what would you add? Well, I would just say that once during the pandemic, I tried to buy something other than sort of just the Beyond Meat burgers. No one in my family ate it. So I don't know. They've got something going with the Beyond Meat burgers. But some of the other products, uh, not so much. In terms of what they're saying, I know that High-profile restaurant partnerships have been a big source of sales for the company. Um, but throughout the pandemic, shouldn't people have continued to buy this? So maybe it really is competition biting, not just Impossible Foods, but some of the big players, too, like Tyson. Mm. So maybe that's what it's coming down to. We'll see as the economy reopens and as people have barbecues, if they're going to be barbecuing Beyond Meat burgers and that's, sausages. That's a great point, Morgan. Uh, real quick to you, as I'm checking the price of Oatly, this reminds me. It's oh, down I about, was just going to go there. There, please do. Down about 3.5% today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Agritech, right? The plant-based food phenomenon. And, and I think sort of to that point, you know, what we're hearing and you're seeing it with this double upgrade with Beyond Today is the fact that it is a reopening play and that the restaurant channels do seem to be more lucrative, more profitable. But perhaps part of the reason is because maybe people are still a little nervous about how do you cook a Beyond Meat patty? I don't know. We haven't done much of it in our house, but I'd go out and I'd order it potentially. Yeah. Oatly, on the other hand, it's like I crack it open. I put it in my coffee every morning. <laughs> See, I leave Delicious. the oats for the oatmeal and I leave the coffee or the milk for the coffee. All right. Let's move along because we're just getting some uh, more news on this right now. SoftBank CEO Masasun is sounding an alarm on the Olympics and calling out officials for moving forward despite a deadly fourth COVID wave that's gripping Japan. Masasun tweeted that more than 80 percent of people want the Olympics to be postponed or canceled. 
Who and on what authority is it being forced through? Most of Japan remains on lockdown as its vaccine efforts lag other developed nations, with just 4% of its population vaccinated per Reuters. The Tokyo Games are slated to begin in less than two months, and the International Olympic Committee has stated they will absolutely go ahead despite any COVID restrictions. Uh, let's see. U.S. State Department just now raising its travel advisory uh, to do not travel amid COVID-19 for Japan and Sri Lanka. Mike, this is going to be a tricky one. Absolutely. And, and interesting that it's coming from this direction where, the, you know, people in Japan concerned about the vulnerability of the local population, as opposed to, you know, people there wanting to host uh, this huge marquee event and, uh, and maybe being pressured uh, by those outside to close it down. So it is it is seem like it's going to come down to the wire. They obviously are ramping up vaccine efforts from a very, very slow start. But Unclear if that's going to change the debate. Yeah, I'm just, dear I'm trying to make sense of this advisory. I mean, the U.S. State Department raising its travel advisory to do not travel for Japan. What does that mean for the Olympics? I think you have to wonder if the organizers go back with pressure, uh, not just from the U.S., but as Mike said, from its own population, even corporations there. Some 70 percent of Japanese firms want the Olympics canceled or postponed. But, you know, it comes down to one number here, $26 billion. This is the most expensive summer games ever. So it looks unlikely that they're going to cancel it. I guess the question, perhaps, will they mandate vaccines for athletes and fans? True, because, Morgan, you could envision a scenario where they say, OK, we're raising it now, but we hope then this kind of adds to international pressure on Japan or maybe on the athletes of the Olympics to do whatever they can to make this as, as safe as possible, and then they can rescind it as the games uh, open up. Yeah, and I think to that point, the Olympic Committee has said that 80% of athletes and officials are set to be vaccinated ahead of these games, uh, and that they're going to be preventing the athletes from being able to mingle, essentially, with the public and keep their sort of uh, range of motion and, and where they can go uh, very limited. So there do, do seem to be, for better or worse, it's certainly it's up for debate, but there do seem to be some protocols that are in place um, that the Olympics and the folks that are organizing it, um, you know, are really pre pushing and stressing right now. But to yeah. your point, I mean, we are we're seeing quite a number of folks in Japan. CEO of Rakuten also called it a quote unquote suicide mission. So Yikes. you're seeing that public um, outcry. You know, this gather. reminds me a little bit. I, li I happen to be living in London when the Olympics were there in 2012, Mike, and there was fury <laughs> locally in all the lead up to the games about how it was going to be a disaster and blah, 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 blah. Well, it went off beautifully. It showcased London and the UK at its best, and it became one of the public's favorite celebrations. And maybe this is part of the normal process we go through, with the, but obviously with COVID on top of things. Yeah, that's actually a, a pretty good reminder that maybe the locals don't always love the idea of hosting. It seems like it's yeah. more nuisance than opportunity. Uh, and, you know, that might be coloring a little bit of, uh, of the discussion. Right. And hopefully they'll look back and maybe say it was an opportunity maybe to uh, remind everybody at a moment when they're looking to travel that Japan would be a place to go. All right. Finally, before we go today, Bank of America Merrill Lynch's brokerage is reportedly saying goodbye to cold calls after relying on them for nearly a century. They're revamping their broker training program to encourage trainees to use referrals or LinkedIn to land new clients. And why? Well, there's those do not call registries. There's the rise of smartphones and spam screening. It's all made cold calling obsolete. According to Merrill, less than 2% of people who are cold called actually answer the phone. Although, Deirdre, there was a funny stat from the piece where the guy said, I used to have a 1% success rate with my cold calls, and that was considered really good. Um, I love this, how it's the triumph of LinkedIn. Like, the annoyance becomes, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then LinkedIn wins. 
<laughs> I was laughing at that point as well that LinkedIn has become the new cold call because that message is somehow going to get through to you. You can see on your Apple or Android phone now that there's a spam risk. So who really answers their cold calls? LinkedIn is probably a pretty smart way of doing it. But Kelly, it also um, it's an interesting change also because you think about these trainees and the ones that are successful are probably the ones that are relying on their extensive personal networks, right, to get clients. So I wonder if this uh, levels the field a little bit, but those analysts, those trainees get into your LinkedIn training, right? We got to do it. Yes, so seriously. They'll, they'll have to go through it as well. Morgan, if you're applying for a job at Merrill now, it's like, oh, check out my LinkedIn profile, right? That's like your best currency. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's at any job though, right? I mean, LinkedIn True. has just become that. Um, it is interesting to your point. It's almost like, why didn't it happen sooner? Mm-hmm. You also got to think that the pandemic and people working from home, some of those trainees working from home. Maybe it was a, a bigger opportunity for certain types of violations or missteps to happen, too. So it was in some case, some ways kind of overdue or always inevitable that it was going to happen as everybody starts to return from the office. But I just also note, like at a time of hyper connectivity because of things of like LinkedIn and other social media, how important referrals continue to be. I think yes. that Bank of America is at 40%. Yes, still. 100, absolutely. Michael, And because I can't wait to hear your thoughts <laughs> on this, I will give you the final <laughs> word. Well, I mean, it's been a long time since kind of smile and dial was the main mode of, uh, of communication with brokers and their clients. I also think, though, that it was always even kept because you're weeding people out. I mean, these trainee programs are basically how much humiliation and rejection can you endure on the way to building a book of business. And that's sort of less relevant than it used to be, as you guys have said. It's no longer, let me see if I can keep somebody on the phone and give them a stock tip. It's, it's much more about kind of communicating the way they, uh, they are normally <laughs> approached about things electronic. But humiliation is still such an important part of that process. It's you know, They've got to find some replacement. Guys, thank you all, Morgan, Brennan, Mike Santoli, and Deirdre Bosa for this edition of Rapid Fire. Still ahead, President Biden has a proposal to stop a race to the bottom for corporate taxes, but it would still hit U.S. companies harder than those overseas. We're going to look at how much they could pay right after this. Welcome back. To put a halt on the race for the lowest corporate tax rate, the White House is proposing a global minimum corporate rate of 15 percent. It actually has its eye on an even higher number. But Robert Frank joins me now with how much companies could likely pay. Robert? Well, Kelly, the Biden administration close to a deal with the G7 countries over a new global minimum tax rate of 15 percent. That is lower than the 21 percent Biden had originally proposed, and it would mark a massive shift in the way multinationals are taxed both here and abroad. And it would mark an end to what the White House calls a race to the bottom for global tax rates. Now, the way it would work is that companies would pay a minimum 15 percent tax rates in the countries where they do business. U.S. companies would pay an additional tax on the overseas profits they bring back to shareholders, either through dividends or cash. Biden has proposed doubling that tax to 21 percent. But if the rest of the world moves to 15 percent, it is likely Biden will also scale back the rate for U.S. companies closer to that 15 percent. Tax experts also say he may even consider lowering the broader corporate tax rate to a proposed 28 percent to something maybe closer to the 21 percent. That's because if the gap between the rate companies pay in other countries and the rate they pay in the U.S. is too large, 
That means more countries, companies would move profits and jobs overseas. And all of this matters because U.S. companies earn more than $500 billion of profits from overseas. That is about a quarter of their annual total. Now, hardest hit here would be the tech sector, especially companies like Alphabet, Facebook and Apple, but also rolling in pharmaceutical companies, the big global banks and some retail. All of those sectors, all those companies likely paying more now that the rest of the world could come up to 15 percent as the minimum tax, Kelly. It's fascinating to see just how interconnected it is and how other countries, in a way, may end up influencing our corporate tax right here. Robert, thank you. We'll keep following the story. Robert Frank. Coming up from higher gas prices to valuation concerns, Bank of America has laid out six reasons to get bearish on Dollar General. The analyst behind this call joins us next. Welcome back. Shares of Dollar General are down about 3% today on a downgrade from B of A to underperform. They note six headwinds facing the stock from higher gas prices to wage pressures, and they warn it's not just Dollar General that could struggle. Let's bring in Robbie Ohms. He's Managing Director and Research Analyst for Bank of America Securities. Robbie, this is interesting to me, for one, because Dollar General has been such a great performing stock for so many years, and also because there's a lot of economic implications here. So um, let's start with higher gas prices, and maybe I'll rattle through them. Return of grocery store promos, online grocery penetration, prescription growth, wage pressures, um, and just its valuation. Uh, how much downside do you think for Dollar General and, and who does benefit from the environment you're describing? Yeah, so we have a $190 price objective on Dollar General. And, you know, you're right. Dollar General is a great company. They've been doing great for a while. I expect them to continue to do very well. They've got a great management team and a great strategy. Uh, we're adding them to a list of uh, underperform rated uh, grocery related names that include companies like Kroger, uh, also Sprouts. And, uh, you know, in addition to Dollar Tree, uh, one of um, Dollar General's more direct competitors. And, you know, we do think uh, a couple of things are potential incremental headwinds. One of them is the potential with gas over three dollars, the potential for that to go higher uh, could weigh on Dollar General Seamstress sales. Um, we also believe that the wage pressures that you're hearing a lot of people talk about could disproportionately impact Dollar General because we calculate that their average wages are somewhere around $8.50 for the starting mm -hmm. wage. That compares with, I think, around $11 uh, for Walmart. I think companies like McDonald's have taken their starting level wages up as well. So we think that pressure could be an issue uh, more than we had realized maybe as recently as a quarter or two ago. Wow. And so you mentioned Walmart. You actually have favorable views on Walmart, Target, and possibly Costco and BJ. So basically, in this new environment, you need size, you need digital, you need scale. What else do you need? Uh, you need all those things. I think another advantage, Walmart's already gone to $11 a, an hour, a kind of minimum average. Uh, so the, incrementally, some of the pressures you're seeing, they might not uh, feel as much. Uh, you also, as you mentioned, you, you need an omni-channel capability. If you look at Walmart and Target, a uh, drive up uh, or pick up at the store continues to be a huge driver to their e-commerce business. And they're executing that at, uh, we believe, a much higher level than most of the other companies that uh, sell groceries or general merchandise. If gas prices reverse course, could Dollar General be investable again? Uh, absolutely. You know, the uh, you know, I've had a long term buy rating on the company. I did downgrade them to neutral a few months ago. Uh, but I, I believe that they have very tough comparisons against them. 
and we see things happening near term that weren't happening last year. We see pharmacies coming back online. Dollar General doesn't have a pharmacy, but the drugstores could pick up a little more traffic than they were last year. Uh, we're seeing grocery store promotions continue to move up uh, in the data we look at. We believe a more promotional grocery environment as you move through this year could put a little more than average pressure on Dollar General same-store sales. And then again, if if you know, gas, which is over three bucks, you know, continues to go higher right. uh, and it stays there. That That's a headwind that we believe impacts Dollar General more negatively than some of the other consumables retailers. It's so uh, fascinating. Like I said, touches on so many parts of the market and the economy. Robbie, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Robbie Ohms of Bank of America. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.